Welcome to the Oxpol Blogcast, where we'll be sharing research, analysis and experiences from members of the University of Oxford's Department of Politics and International Relations. I'm your host, Anastasia Bektimirova, an MPhil student at the department and a podcast editor here at the Oxpol Blog. This episode is part of the series Women in Politics – Perspectives from the Field and Academia. Over the next episodes, we are going to explore a feminist turn in political science and international relations research and try to better understand women's experiences in politics. We have no template for what a powerful woman looks like, except that she looks rather like a man. So writes a prominent British classicist Mary Beard in her acclaimed work Women in Power, a Manifesto. Indeed, the examples corroborating that view of political arena as a place favoring conventionally masculine behavior and appearance are pervasive. Let's recall just a few. A former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was instructed by her advisors to lower the pitch of her voice to come across more masculine, while a former Chancellor of Germany Angela Merkel and a former President of Finland Daria Halonin tended to avoid disclosing their private lives to the public arguably as an attempt to distance themselves from the conventional image of a female politician. Though there are multiple examples like this, research evidence on whether masculine traits in political leadership are actually favored by the electorate over feminine ones is not that conclusive. So, focusing on the United States today with our guest Rachel Bernhardt, who is an associate professor at the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford, we will explore if positioning themselves in a more gender-typical way, in other words, coming across as more masculine or feminine, can get candidates extra points in the political leadership game. Rachel, welcome to the podcast, it's an absolute delight to have you. Thank you for inviting me on, Anastasia, it's really a pleasure to be here. Rachel, much of your research has been focused on appearance-based discrimination in politics, with a particular focus on the gendered dimension of this. To begin, could you tell us what has led you to focus on this topic area in your work? What observations or perhaps experiences have inspired and informed your research interest? Well, one of the things that got me interested in studying women in politics originally was observing the different approach and different treatment of Hillary Clinton, a U.S. candidate for presidential office. When she first ran for office in 2008, she presented herself in a very masculine way. She was going to be assertive. She was going to wear pantsuits. So she was going to be tough and pro-military. And when she presented herself in running for office again in 2016, that had really changed. She emphasized being a mother and a grandmother. She wore more colorful and feminine outfits. And I thought to myself, there's something going on here, right? Clearly, she's interested in winning office, so she must think that these different approaches will help her be successful with the electorate, but why such different approaches? So that was where some of my interest started, and then it's just grown from there. There's been so much interesting progress for women in politics over the last several years, and there's also been a lot of backlash simultaneously. So it's a really fast-moving and exciting field to be in, and I'm really glad that we have a chance to chat about it. Rachel, before we dive any further into this, though, could you give us a sense of what is actually understood as feminine and masculine leadership styles in politics, and how do you operationalize masculinity and femininity in your own work? 
Great question. So it's only recently that political science has started to think about masculinity and femininity as concepts separate from being a man or a woman in politics, because of course you could have a man who's more masculine or feminine and a woman who's more masculine or feminine. So really it's a way of studying additional variation within these groups. And typically the research on gender and politics tends to break masculinity and femininity down into three relevant dimensions. The first dimension is what we would call gender traits, feminine and masculine traits. So some masculine traits are things like being aggressive or assertive or very independent-minded. And typical feminine traits might be being compassionate, sensitive, listening to others. So we can see some of those traits are really opposite to one another. Others aren't so obviously opposite, right? So that's one dimension. The next dimension is what is called issue areas. And that's the notion that different people are stereotyped as being good at handling different issues in politics. So some classic gender stereotypes are that men are better on foreign policy and military concerns, and women are better on education and healthcare issues. And we can see that that relates to those gendered traits, right? If you're compassionate and caring, maybe you should be the person who's in charge of education or healthcare. The final category is what is called ideology stereotypes. So this is the stereotype that women will be more liberal or progressive typically than men. And again, we can see the linkage there to some of those issues and traits as well. If you think that everybody in society should be equally cared for, then you may want more redistribution. That's going to position you on the left in most party systems. Conversely, if you think that everyone should be independent and pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that's going to position you on the right in a lot of systems. So these are the three main ways that people think about it. And in my own work, I've mostly focused on the gender traits dimension in the work where I've been examining this. Thanks, Rachel. That is now clear. And now, thinking of the voter side of the equation, do you find any notable variation in the views on masculinity and femininity in political leadership across different groups? Is there any evidence of interesting heterogeneity when it comes to the way voters evaluate a candidate who clearly displays feminine or masculine traits that you have just described? Absolutely. So I'll mention some of the things I've found and contrast them with some of the things other people have found. So in one of my studies on this topic, I looked at the sort of gendered leadership style that voters preferred. And we can think about this as how do you go about making decisions? Do you seek to do that in a collaborative manner by listening to others, encouraging feedback from everyone? Or do you do it in a more independent, go-it-alone, assertive manner? Again, this maps onto those gender trait stereotypes that I was describing earlier. And surprisingly, what I found is that in the U.S. context, a lot of voters were actually more supportive of the same politicians when they were described as having a feminine leadership style than a masculine leadership style. So on average, people were hoping that politicians would approach problem solving and governance in a more collaborative listening manner, which was a bit surprising because, as you mentioned, we know that historically women have had to conform to these more masculine approaches, the ironly kind of approach that you were describing. 
one group where we don't find that to be true is among particularly conservative and Republican men in the U.S. So that group expressed more of a pro-masculine leadership style. They wanted someone who was confident and who felt like they understood the right policy and made the decision based on that and didn't necessarily need to consult with others or do a lot of collaborating if they felt like they had the right policy. So this was quite interesting. In some ways, it contradicts what we thought previously, that women might have to be more masculine in their style or approach to politics. In other ways, perhaps it's a little unsurprising. Voters are evolving over time, so it's not as though we could measure some preference at one point in time and expect it to be the same 25 years later or 100 years later or five years later necessarily. The other is that we know that a lot of these preferences are contextual. So what some of my colleagues have found is that during times of threat and war, voters tend to have more pro-male and pro-masculine preferences. And during times of peace, more pro-woman and pro-feminine preferences. So in that sense, I think other research has shown that these preferences can evolve and be contextual. And in that sense, it's perhaps less shocking than it might otherwise seem. Uh I see. So, Rachel, on that point, could you elaborate on the actual cues that the voters respond to? In other words, what it is that candidates do or adjust in their behavior or appearance in order to come across as more masculine or feminine while campaigning, for instance? Yeah, great question. One could think about it manifesting in a variety of ways. We talked about some of the things like leadership styles already. Some of the other things that people have studied is rhetoric, the kinds of topics they emphasize. One of the other things that I have studied as well in the past is personal appearance. So do people sort of exaggerate or downplay gender typical traits and ways of dressing and so on in their appearance? You mentioned at the beginning, for instance, Margaret Thatcher being advised to lower the pitch of her voice. Another one that political scientists have recently begun to be able to study more systematically. And a lot of the work that I do has been focused on the visual aspect of appearance, but we could imagine people manifesting all sorts of different things from voice pitch and so on. One of the really interesting things that we see in the U.S. is that there's a big difference in how candidates present themselves in terms of cultivating or performing their gender, as you were describing. So among Republican candidates, which again in the U.S. is the more conservative party, they tend to have extremely gender-typical self-presentation. So think of things like the man with the square jaw, wearing the business suit, traditional haircut, among women, longer hair, dress, jewelry, again, a sort of very gender typical presentation. And then in contrast, among Democrats, who are the more liberal or progressive group in the U.S., it's quite different. There's a lot more gender ambiguity. There's a lot more variation in how people position or perform their gender among the Democratic Party. And what that means is that actually one of the things that I find is that voters can often guess accurately whether someone is a Democrat or Republican just from looking at their picture because that gender performance is so different for the two parties. Rachel, just on the point of physical appearance, to what extent do those features actually matter for voters' preferences and electoral outcomes eventually? Could you perhaps quantify that effect for us to understand the magnitude? Great question. So for starters, we know from political science research that a bunch of other things are going to matter more. 
in the U.S. context, which is very polarized, whether you're a Democrat or Republican is going to be the decisive factor for many voters in most elections. We know that things like incumbency and how much money you've raised also play a very big role. But surprisingly, we actually see that people's appearance matters quite a bit as well. So in my book project, one of the things that I look at is Oregon state legislative elections. And it's an interesting place to study it because it's entirely vote by mail and all of the voters get sent a pamphlet that has photos of all of the candidates for office. So everybody actually sees a photo of the candidates when they're voting. And what I find when I look at these politicians is that basically if you are more conventionally attractive or more competent candidate, you do significantly better in elections than very similar candidates who, you know, the same party, same place do in that district who are less conventionally attractive or less sort of competent or professional looking. And the effects are big enough that basically if you changed the attractiveness of these candidates about one standard deviation, so typical variation in attractiveness among the candidates, that would change the outcome of about 8% of elections in the state of Oregon, which isn't a massive number, but it's not really a small number either. If we think about how close a lot of elections are in the U.S. and that they tend to be increasingly close, that's a pretty big number being changed by something that we maybe normatively think of as not something voters should decide on the basis of. We hope that voters make decisions based on who is most qualified and knowledgeable and so on. And it seems like a non-trivial part of people's decision-making process is to focus on those appearance factors. The other important thing is that what appearance factors they focus on is different across genders and also across ethnicities in the U.S. So if we look at the effect of being conventionally attractive, for instance, for women versus for men, for men, it's a little bit helpful. It's statistically significant because we have lots of elections. So all else being equal, it's better to be perceived as attractive by others as a man. For women, it's incredibly important. And attractiveness for women is strongly correlated with age as well. So people are really willing to and enthusiastic about voting for young, conventionally attractive women. They're extremely unenthusiastic about voting for older or less conventionally attractive women. And so that means that the experience that you have as a candidate of, say, 25 years old or average attractiveness is going to be exceptionally different for women and for men. Thank you, Rachel. That now makes sense. And do those appearance features have an ambiguous effect, or do the effects vary depending on the context? For example, in national versus state-level elections. So these elections that I was just mentioning are state-level, so they're sort of middle of the pack. We don't have very good data on how this might affect lower-level elections. There's tons of them in the U.S., so it's a super interesting area to study. And we think that studying these sort of lower and state-level elections matters because that in turn dictates who makes it up to the national level of office. So we know most people running for national office are not running for the first time. And what that means is there is this sort of selection process in place that rewards Again, I'm just going to keep calling them conventionally attractive candidates. We're going to end up with, on average, a more attractive pool of candidates by the time we get up to national elections because people have been chosen over and over on the basis of this, right? 
So we see lots of variation effectively in what people look like at the local level of office and a little bit less variation once we get to the state level and less variation when we get to the national level, because at that point, everybody's getting expensive haircuts and expensive suits and jewelry and professional makeup and so on and so forth, right? So they're really polished looking. And so what we would expect based on that is that appearance shouldn't be much of a factor in these national elections. Basically, very few people are going to be really helped or really hurt compared to their competitors by appearance at that point. But that doesn't mean that appearance is irrelevant. It's just playing a part earlier in the process. If in local office, you're getting sort of weeded out based on your appearances, you never have the chance to go up to national office. And considering that those gender typical variables might be adjusted for the same candidate, as you mentioned, from election to election, that's particular interest to the story, doesn't it? Rachel, and finally, thinking more broadly of the promising research directions related to this topic, what do you think are some of the gaps that still remain? Are there any methodological problems, perhaps, that impede getting a more comprehensive or conclusive answer to some of the remaining questions? Yeah, that's a really great set of questions. So historically, when political science has tried to study topics like gender, one of the ways that we have done that is through surveys and experiments. And those are typically text-based. So we might ask people, you know, what do you think of this candidate or that candidate? Or how would you rate um, their competence or their strength? And when it's all text-based, it's really hard to capture these aspects like physical appearance or vocal pitch or features that don't really come across very clearly. So one of the new methodological approaches I've been developing is a kind of visual experiment called visual conjoint. And basically the idea behind that is that we take the same picture, for instance, and we manipulate it slightly by presenting different people with different versions of that picture. We can see how they react to particular features of, for instance, physical appearance. We can do the same thing as well with something like vocal pitch, but that's not something that I personally have worked on. For our listeners who might be less familiar with experimental research methods, the logic behind conjoint experiments allows to study and compare causal effects of several dimensions of a treatment simultaneously. In other words, the researcher can study the effects of an indefinite number of factors in one experiment. And this specific feature of conjoint designs is an advancement compared to standard survey experiments that can test only one or a small number of isolated factors at a time, which is not suitable for studying multidimensional preferences or choices. What Rachel is describing is a further advancement, which is a visual variation of a conjoint experimental design. Yeah. So what that allows us to do is get at things that we really think matter in real life, like the color of someone's skin, for instance. It's really hard if I write you a text-based question and I say, what do you think of Anastasia, the dark-skinned candidate versus Anastasia, the light-skinned candidate? People think that's weird. Why are you suddenly talking about that? It seems very obtrusive, maybe even a little bit rude, depending on the context. And they're not going to respond authentically. It's not the way people learn that information in the real world. And it's very obtrusive and socially uncomfortable to be asked a question like that. 
But if we present people with photos of candidates where in one version, your skin is slightly darkened and in one version, your skin is slightly lightened. And then we say, what do you think of this candidate's competence, for instance, just as a sample measure, then we can start to get some sense of how things like skin tone might matter for shaping people's political attitudes and decisions. And I think that's really important because we've seen all over the world, things like whether you're wearing your hair uncovered or not, or the color of your skin when you're being interrogated by police or other sort of arms of the government matter a lot for your treatment. These are really important determinants of people's social and political experiences. And so I really hope that political science continues to sort of dig into these areas that shape a lot of our everyday experiences and subsequently how we feel about government, who we vote for, and lots of other interesting variables as well. Yes, that sounds really promising indeed, and goes to show that methodological innovation helps researchers even to ask new questions. In this case, tapping into the heavily visual nature of political culture. Thank you so much, Rachel, and that's all we have time for. Wishing you best of luck with your research and very much looking forward to your upcoming book. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and I really hope that we'll get to see a lot more exciting research coming out in this area in future years. And thank you for all of your work to promote and support other scholars who are working in this area. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Oxpol Blogcast. Be sure to keep your eyes on the Oxpol blog at blog.politics.ox.ac.uk to keep updated on the latest articles and podcasts from the blog.